Greetings, and welcome to Stars and Stuff, the astronomy podcast brought to you by me, Richard J. Bartlett. In this episode, we'll have a quick update on what's happening with Betelgeuse before turning our gaze toward the Clownface Nebula. After that, I'll cover the news and the planets as usual, and then we'll talk about the many names of the goddess Venus. Betelgeuse continues to fade. It's now at magnitude 1.66, a full magnitude fainter than usual. There's still no reliable prediction for what could happen next, but recent studies indicate the star could reach its minimum brightness around the 21st of this month. There's about 7 days wiggle room here, so it could be anywhere between the 14th and the 28th. As always, keep your eyes on the prize. If Betelgeuse does go bang, it'll most likely be a sight that won't be seen again for many lifetimes. Once you've glanced towards Orion and made sure the star is still there, turn to the east for this episode's selected deep sky object. NGC 2392, the Clown Face Nebula, can be found in the constellation of Gemini the Twins. It's a little out of the way, but can be found within the same binocular field of view as Wasat, also known as Delta Geminorum. You might be able to spot it with binoculars, but if you do, you won't see much. At best, it'll appear as a faint, slightly fuzzy star, and you'll need a telescope to properly appreciate it. If you want to try your luck, look a little to the east of Wasat for 63 Geminorum, a magnitude 5 star. Center that in your finder scope, and then drop a low-powered eyepiece into your scope. Just to the southeast is a faint, magnitude 8, orangish star known as HD 59087. Right next to that is the nebula. The nebula should give itself away, as the star, of course, will be a point of light, whereas the nebula should appear as a tiny, concentrated, fuzzy patch. It also appears slightly bluish, compared to the star's orange tint. So what are you looking at? The clown face nebula is a planetary nebula. These nebulae are so-called because, at high magnification, they can have the disc-like appearance of a planet. The reality is that you're looking at the expanded shell of gas thrown off by a dying star. NGC 2392 is over 3,000 light-years away and is expanding at the rate of about 33 miles per second. It's called the Clown-Faced Nebula because, in larger telescopes, it shows an outer ring with a central bright area, like the red nose of a clown. Except, in this case, it's not red, it's blue, but otherwise it looks like a clown face. Through my own 4-inch reflector, at about 100 times, I was able to see the brighter region, but not the outer ring. If you look at it directly, it looks a little like a globular cluster, but inverted vision should help to bring out a little detail. Next time, we'll skip over to Cancer, the next constellation in the Zodiac, and the double star Tegmen. Scientists have completed a spectroscopic study of white dwarf stars. In process for more than a decade, the completed survey discovered 98 detached double white dwarf binaries. White dwarf stars are the remnant core of a star, which is left over after the star has burned through its nuclear fuel. The stars catalogued in the survey do not follow the traditional rules for the creation of white dwarfs. According to lead author Dr. Warren Brown, the universe isn't old enough to make such low-mass white dwarfs on their own, and yet here they are. That's because they have companions in close orbits. The universe can't make a low-mass white dwarf unless it's part of a compact binary. Uranus and Neptune, the two outermost giant planets of the solar system, have similar masses, but there are also striking differences. Two different giant impacts could have had completely separate effects. In the case of Uranus, a grazing collision can tilt the planet but does not affect the planet's interior, 
On the other hand, a head-on collision for Neptune strongly affects the interior but does not form a disk and is therefore consistent with the absence of large moons on regular orbits. Such a collision, which remixes the deep interior, is supported by the larger observed heat flux of Neptune. A beating heart of frozen nitrogen controls Pluto's winds and may give rise to features on its surface, according to a new study. Pluto's famous heart-shaped structure, named Tombaugh Regio, quickly became famous after NASA's New Horizons mission captured footage of the dwarf planet in 2015 and re revealed that it isn't the barren world scientists thought it was. Now, new research shows Pluto's renowned nitrogen heart rules its atmospheric circulation. Uncovering how Pluto's atmosphere behaves provides scientists with another place to compare to our own planet. Such findings can pinpoint both similar and distinctive features between Earth and a dwarf planet billions of miles away. Nitrogen gas, an element also found in the air on Earth, comprises most of Pluto's thin atmosphere, along with small amounts of carbon monoxide and the greenhouse gas methane. Frozen nitrogen also covers part of Pluto's surface in the shape of a heart. During the day, a thin layer of this nitrogen ice warms and turns into vapor. At night, the vapor condenses and once again forms ice. Each sequence is like a heartbeat, pumping nitrogen winds around the dwarf planet. New research suggests this cycle pushes Pluto's atmosphere to circulate in the opposite direction of its spin, a unique phenomenon called retrorotation. As air whips close to the surface, it transports heat, grains of ice and haze particles to create dark wind streaks and plains across the north and northwestern regions. An international team of astronomers has found an unusual monster galaxy that existed about 12 billion years ago when the universe was only 1.8 billion years old, or 13% of its current age of 13.8 billion years. The team found that the galaxy formed stars at a high rate and then died. Why it suddenly stopped forming stars is unclear. According to Benjamin Forrest, the study's lead author, even before the universe was 2 billion years old, the galaxy had already formed a mass of more than 300 billion suns, making it an ultra-massive galaxy. More, more remarkably, we showed that it formed most of its stars in a huge frenzy when the universe was less than 1 billion years old, and then became inactive by the time the universe was only 1.8 billion years old. After studying data from optical and radio telescopes based on the ground and in space, a team of astronomers determined that a galaxy known as NGC 4490, a nickname the Cocoon Galaxy because of its shape, has a clear double nucleus structure, according to the paper. One nucleus can be seen in optical wavelengths, the other is hidden in dust and can only be seen in infrared and radio wavelengths. Lastly, few sights are more romantic than a star-filled sky but there are fewer and fewer places on Earth where we can still enjoy a truly dark, star-filled sky. Light pollution means we risk losing one of the most romantic spectacles in nature, so this Valentine's Day, astronomers are asking the public to help show their love for the stars by making light pollution observations as part of the Globe at Night program. The project asks participants to look up at the sky and then choose which of a set of eight star maps most closely matches what they see. It doesn't require detailed knowledge about constellations or astronomy. As long as you can find Orion, you can take part. To find out more, go to www.globeatnight.org. If you still haven't seen Mercury, you might still have a chance before it disappears from view around the middle of the month. 
it's dipping and fading, but if you get a clear view of the western horizon, you can try looking about 30 minutes after sunset. Unfortunately, the moon is nowhere nearby to help you, so you might need to scan the area with binoculars. The planet will be about 8 degrees above the horizon from mid-North American latitudes. If you live in the UK, the planet will appear at about the same altitude around 45 minutes after sunset. There's no problem finding Venus, of course. It's still shining brilliantly in the southwest and is currently setting about 4 hours after the sun. This is the planet at its best. It'll reach greatest eastern elongation on the March 24th and will remain visible until the end of May. It's now magnitude minus 4.2, but is only 17 arc seconds in apparent diameter. Neptune sets about 2 hours after the Sun and is past the point where it's worth observing. Uranus, however, sets around 11.30pm and is still providing us with plenty of observational opportunities. Catch it while you can. If you're out all night, you've got a long wait now until the trio of Mars, Jupiter and Saturn start to rise above the southeastern horizon. Mars, still a dim magnitude 1.2, rises first at about 3 hours before sunrise. Jupiter, a more respectable magnitude minus 1.9, rises about an hour later, and then Saturn, at about magnitude 0.6, follows about 30 to 45 minutes after that. The Moon reaches last quarter on the 15th and will pass Mars on the 18th, Jupiter on the 19th, and finally Saturn on the 20th. If you live in North America, rise early to see a rare occultation of Mars by the Moon. You can get the times for your city by going to tinyurl.com forward slash moon 021820. Pretty much everyone knows what the 14th of February is, and while you may love or hate the date, this year is a little more special because the planet Venus is so easily visible in the evening sky. I've repeatedly described it as unmissable because, well, it is. You can currently see it for, for hours after sunset, a shining white beacon of light in the evening twilight. Perhaps it's little wonder then that the ancients named such a stunning sight after their goddess of beauty and love. Most people know that Venus was the Roman goddess of love, and many people have heard of Aphrodite, her Greek predecessor, but the Greeks themselves weren't the first to associate the planet with love and beauty. By the way, before we really get into this, it's worth knowing that it wasn't all love and romance. Let's just say there were some rather more adult themes there too. And while I'm not going to make this R-rated, on the off chance you have little ears listening, I think it's fair to say you might have some interesting questions if you let them hear all of this. Anyway, to continue, the ancient Sumerians recorded observations of the planet some 5,000 years ago and associated with the goddess Inanna. The daughter of Enlil, the storm god, Inanna was the queen of heaven and earth and associated with fertility and love. But those weren't the only things Inanna was known for. Beside the romantic notion of love, Inanna was also associated with sex, war, justice and political power. So even 5,000 years ago, sex and politics went in hand in hand with each other. The Babylonians knew Inanna as Ishtar and made the same associations but they took the sexual aspect of it one stage further. To them, Ishtar was also the Virgin Mother, a contradictory association given that she was also the goddess of sexual love and prostitution. Beyond this, she was also said to be irritable and violent, even cruel, and here's where it gets a bit weird. To the Assyrians, she was the Lady of Battle, and was often depicted with a beard down to her chest. Now, I'm not one to judge, and if that's your thing then good luck to you. 
but that doesn't sound very sexy to me. The Egyptians took a kinder view, but their legend still had its weirder aspects. To them, she was Isis, their own version of the mother goddess. Isis was sister and wife to Osiris, and they jointly ruled over the land. That is, until their brother Set murdered Osiris, cut him into 14 pieces, and scattered his remains across the whole of Egypt. Isis found the pieces and resurrected her husband slash brother just long enough for her to conceive a son, Horus. Incidentally, I'd never seen the movie Gods of Egypt, from, but from what I can tell, it bears as much resemblance to the original myth as the remake of Clash of the Titans did to the legend of Perseus and Andromeda. But that's a podcast for another time. And then there was Aphrodite. This Greek goddess had her earthly origins linked to Ishtar, but mythologically she was said to have risen from the sea. The exact details are a little more lurid, and would make most males eyes water. Suffice it to say, it's hard to imagine how a woman of such beauty could be born in that way. Aphrodite was associated with love, beauty, and, well, sex again. It's said that Eros, the god of lust, was a constant companion, along with Himeros, a young man linked with uncontrollable desire. At some point, she also found the time to have an affair with Ares, the god of war. Now, besides the amorous adventures of Zeus I mentioned in a previous podcast, if this scenario isn't a solid basis for an HBO show, I don't know what is. The Romans clearly thought this was a good idea too, and adopted Aphrodite as their own love goddess and renamed her Venus. Despite the centuries that have passed since the Sumerians worshipped in Anna, not a lot had changed for the goddess in this latest incarnation. Besides being the goddess of love and sex, and virtue and vice, she was also associated with luck and prosperity, including success in battle. Like Aphrodite, she also had an affair with the god of war. However, the wily Romans, no doubt in an effort to avoid getting sued for copyright infringement by the Greeks, called the god of war Mars and adapted their story to give them a son, Cupid. Yes, the same Cupid you sometimes see on overpriced St. Valentine's Day cards. So there you have it, a short, heavily edited and censored history of everyone's favourite love goddess. By the way, if anyone's interested in adapting my ideas into an HBO show, shoot me an email at astronomywriter at gmail.com. I live nearby and can meet you in Starbucks in about 30 minutes. So here's this episode's trivia question. You can get over 700 like it from my book, The Daily Astronomical and Space Quiz Book which is available on Amazon in both paperback and Kindle format. So here it is. Which planet is closest to the Earth? Is it A. Mercury, B. Venus, C. Mars, D. Jupiter? As always, I'll give you the answer in a few moments. The answer to a trivia question is B, Venus. Given that we just spent a few minutes talking about the planet, you probably could have guessed that. At its closest, it's about 24 million miles from the Earth. Compare that to Mars, which is about 10 times further away, even at its closest. That's it for another episode. As always, if you liked it, please subscribe and tell your friends. You can find stars and stuff on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, Apple and Google, among others, or by going to tinyurl.com forward slash SNSpod. 
If you're interested in my books, you can find them at tinyurl.com forward slash rjbamazon US in the United States and tinyurl.com forward slash rjbamazon UK in the United Kingdom. You're also welcome to email me at astronomywriter at gmail.com with any comments or questions you might have. And don't forget to come join the Stars and Stuff Facebook group at tinyurl.com forward slash SNS Facebook group. Thanks for listening. And until we talk again, clear skies to you.